absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. With me as ever is Christopher Strackley and Stuart Crawford and we welcome to the panel Hadrian Stiff of Elite Squash from Bristol, coach of many of the players at this week's tournament. And Hadrian, I just have to add, as this is your second time, by law, if we ask you to come on the show again, you have to oblige. How you doing? <laughs> Sounds fair. <laughs> yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for having uh, joke, by back. the way. <laughs> We'd be getting worried about one of us getting replaced here. <laughs> no, we're we're a team. That's, that's where this, this is, is going. This is three, and this is three plus one. This is never. No way. Right. Just making sure my job's safe. <laughs> the job that you don't get paid anything to do. <laughs> no, no. This is, guys. Come on. We started this together. We're in this together. Wait. Who who would replace you? Hadrian. Who who authorizes that? This is this is a three way thing. Chris, have you had enough of Stewart already? I'm worried um, I'm going to get outvoted two to one. We no, need, no, need, I, just call it fraud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need our European correspondent, you know, our traveling podcaster. There you go, Merle. <laughs> Speaking of fraud and uh, in, you know, voting, I have loved social media <laughs> over the last few days. I've been living on Twitter, seeing what both Mr. Donald T has to say and everyone's responses to it <laughs> and all the memes. Oh man. Hey, Adrian, is it similar in, um, in, uh, the UK as it is in Canada? Like everyone just, it's all just memes and jokes about American politics. Like, you know, my siblings and a bunch of friends from home, like people just can't get enough of laughing at, at what's going on over here. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think it's sort of the first, the first period was sort of front page of the newspapers everywhere. Yeah. We had, um, I think it was probably a couple of days ago, uh, there was some pretty big news, which is that, that they're probably going to start um, delivering a vaccine in the UK, like basically getting ready for, or end of December to start delivering a vaccine to the older generation, which I think is, you know, it's pretty massive news. Uh, but that was like a subheading after this, you know, presidential carnage that's going on. And I kind of thought, God, yeah, that sort of sums it up pretty. But then, yeah, then, since then <laughs> social media especially has been, there's been some really good ones flying around of, uh, yeah, all sports going on. But I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I try to sort of disconnect myself as much as possible from a lot of the news these days because it just uh, it fills my head up with stuff which sometimes gets me down a bit. No, I hear Wise it. choice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got too many other things fizzing around my tiny brain. <laughs> I do have to add, like one of the best, and I think I sent it to you boys yesterday, was uh, Greta Thunberg. <laughs> she tweeted yesterday, so in 2019 when she visited the UN, and sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, um, and after her her spiel or whatever, and her giving out to Trump, Trump sent a tweet out saying, "You know, Greta Thunberg, sit down, chill out, watch a movie, you know." And so yesterday, <laughs> playing the long game, she she tweeted the exact same thing to Donald Trump. Donald Trump, sit down, <laughs> chill out, watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. I yeah. couldn't stop laughing. Greta, Greta from the clouds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, Squish, what a day. 20 games for anyone who paid a subscription to Squash TV got their whole year's worth yesterday. When do you think the last time that's happened? I can't, like... AskHowardHarding.com Yeah. 
I was hoping Stuart might pull out just a crazy date from his uh his from the squash mine there. I it actually was... tried to think about it. I couldn't <laughs> come up with yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things that Joey and PJ mentioned. I think Joey asked PJ on commentary if he'd ever done three back-to-back five setters, and he said he couldn't remember. So they tend to cover most of the events. So if they haven't done it, then it's possibly not happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been struggling to get up for the early matches. <laughs> uh, I need my beauty sleep over here. So, but I, 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 I it's working the... for you, Chris. It's working. <laughs> Thank you. Not a wrinkle in sight. Um, so yeah, Paul and Marwan, I didn't didn't catch it. I think we should possibly even go back to the day before because the last recording we did was prior to the third round and there was there was obviously one big upset in particular in that round and a match that we're going to talk about in a bit of depth with Hadrian but we should probably do a, an overall review of that round first and then get on to the quarterfinals next. Splendid, lead the way Stu. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, obviously the, the highlight of the round um, being the big upset with young Yusef Ibrahim upsetting tops. It's only highlighted. It depends on your perspective. I don't know if Adrian would agree with that. It's his highlight. <laughs> well, yeah, Adrian certainly doesn't think it was a highlight. It wasn't a highlight um, of my day, no. <laughs> but yeah, him beating uh, Mohamed El Shabagi. Um, most of the other matches went according to seedings. Um, yeah, the, the other unseeded player that made it through to the quarterfinals from that round was Faraz Dasuki, and him and Yusuf Ibrahim actually went on and played each other, but. Do we have any hot takes on that round apart from that match? Um, particularly the, the match that I probably watched the most of and enjoyed was Paul Call against Gregoire Marsh. I thought Marsh was pretty close at one point, actually, to claiming that. He had a good lead in the fourth, uh, sorry, the, the second. I think he was 8 4 up. Yeah. And, uh, also, one love up. And then he lost that game 11 9, but then went on and won the third. So he wasn't that far off from a three love win. And then sort of run out of gas a little bit in the fourth and fifth. I find, I feel uh, Greg has been so close to getting like a top five or a top eight scalp for so long. I don't know if, I'm sure he has got at least, he's got a couple under his belt, but it seems to me he comes on the end of so many of those matches, like three, two, three, ones, like really close, like tie break in the fourth type of thing. Do you boys have any insight into what you think he would have to do to, to, be a bit more consistent in taking a couple of those wins and to get to that next level? I think he looks better this season. Definitely, Marsh. I mean, as you say, Arthur, he's always been one of those players who um, has patches of of getting very close to these players and patches of sort of high performance and then it can sometimes suddenly dip down again. Yeah. Uh, but he did, he did seem to come into the season, I thought, just looking a little bit more composed and sort of consistent with his mentality and probably his game as well. Um, so in Manchester, he looked better. And then, yeah, like I say, I think his performances have been good, good so yeah. far. And I say to beat Paul, he was, he was close um, in that match for sure. And I think, he, as you say, he did have an opportunity to go through and it could often is belief, um, belief, but also being able to stay composed under those, those big points, which comes with experience, but I suppose also comes from knowing that when you do it, that the result does come and having that experience. But I suppose also the other way to look at it is that how often do we see those top end players, you know, Paul included, 
get to those places where it looks like god they might not get through you know they'd be one down or they're they got their back against the wall but they often pull through and that's partly what separates them isn't it from the others um but yeah i think marsh is definitely looking a lot better and maybe he's just sort of figuring himself out a bit more and his game out a bit more as he gets older yeah just from watching that match there was a couple of things that stood out to me one one was something that I think he is improving, and I think it ties in with what you just said there, Hadrian, about his calmness, is that I feel like two or three years ago, he was fairly poor at managing his energy expenditure across a match, and he sort of comes out all guns blazing and tries to sort of blast you off, and then if you can just contain him for long enough, he sort of drops off and can't keep that pace up. Um, and obviously, playing Paul, it's going to be very difficult to blow him off court like that. Um, but he was certainly better at that, but he did still probably play a little bit too fast at the beginning and then sort of came back and midway through the fourth, you could really start see him starting to suffer. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would love to see him add is just a little bit more threat of countering in the front. I think he goes in really quickly in the front, but with his racket really low and he always just sort of holds it and then flicks it back. I don't really see him using the, the counter drop as much as someone with his speed could. Uh, he does lift it quite nicely when he's under pressure and he defends well, but I don't feel like he really hurts people up front as much as the others. I mean, we're talking the top 10 players in the world, so it's not an easy thing to do. But just watching Paul is very good on that counter drop. And when Marsh fired it in, Paul was getting up there and then threatening the drop, sometimes playing it, sometimes hitting deep. But Marsh always lifted or sort of flicked it straight across court. That was one of my... Go ahead, Adrian. Well, no, I was just going to say that um, I think you did right uh, there, Stuart, that it's a lot to do with the fact he goes up so fast, is my, is my opinion on it. And, and it, Paul is a good person to um, kind of relate that to, where Paul is fast, but he, when he moves into the front corners, he tends to arrive uh, on time, which gives him the ability, like you say, to put the counter drop in and kind of have options. And I think he's definitely got better at it, Greg, but I think when you go in that quickly, sometimes the decision gets more rushed and uh, it's more difficult to actually execute the simple things. But um, I think as he gets better at that and he, he, he slightly calms down in the speed that he goes forward and manages that speed that he has, it will definitely become more, uh, he'll become more threatening. I would just like to see him get his racket above the ball. Like you say, when Paul gets on the ball quickly, his racket's always up above the ball and he can cut down on it if he wants or he can push it deep. But with Marsh, I always feel that the racket's out in front. And if he wanted to drop it, I guess he could sort of roll over it and play that little nudged counter drop. But he didn't really have the threat of dropping with a swing that could also be a drive, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I do think as well, just the re- one of the reasons, and it, it probably it overlaps with everything that's just been said, that he doesn't counter drop as much, is that when you're moving at that speed to the front corner, if you drop and the guy's already there, and he's quick enough to turn around and cover the court, but he's left so much space in the court to be exposed. And that relates then a little bit to what you talked about earlier, Stuart, about getting a little bit tired towards the f- fourth game, the, you know, the business end of the match, not necessarily the set itself, but when you leave that kind of space exposed and you're quick enough to cover it, eventually there's only so many bullets you have and eventually you're going to run out. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah, it's it. after watching the quarterfinal matches and comparing to some of the matches in the first couple of rounds, first few rounds, one of the biggest things that stood out to me was 
the the speed and ability to like counter really good balls to the front. Um, you know, watching a guy like watching a guy like Moman, Will Strupp looked pretty good against him, but eventually there's just like way too many balls to the front that James just has trouble cover, trouble covering. But like watching, you know, obviously Muhammad, uh, Marwan. Ferris versus Yusuf, the way those guys move to the front corners, um, Diego and Ali, uh, Paul Marwan, like all these guys, their ability to like get under the balls in the front corner and and nudge these really, really nice counter drops in, which ended up basically turning them from a terrible position. And and there was a lot of winning, like winning shots from, uh, from pretty crazy lunges. Um, I noticed that being like a, pretty big separator from kind of the top tier to the next tier. I think couple that as well with their ability to clear, to get out and then to, yeah. you know, to cover the next, cut the next ball off if it goes long is, is huge. Yeah. They don't leave themselves exposed. Yeah. Macon did that a few times pretty well. Uh, like in that front left moment, took him in so many times and he kind of nudged it up there and then, and then got, got out of the corner uh, pretty quickly. And, um, left moment kind of having to scrape a ball off the wall and not being able to kind of go into his back and ask for a let. Old Macon, old Macon almost made it. Yeah. Yeah. There were some, uh, there were some good ones. But... Yeah. Now obviously sort of leaves us with the other big match of that round, which Hadrian would love to get your take on, which was obviously Mohammed, unfortunately going down to Yusuf Ibrahim. So um, what was your thoughts on that match? Um, I mean, to be honest, it's the first time I've really sort of studied Yusef Ibrahim. You know, I obviously had to watch him a bit before um, Mohammed played him. So it was, it was kind of a new face for me. Um, I've seen his name in a lot of draws and I've seen some of the results he's had over the years. And I've heard about him from a few other players, but I haven't really watched him closely because he hasn't sort of been, he hasn't played any of the players that I coach. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting to see this. I actually thought, you know, he's got quite an unorthodox style um, and quite, you know, obviously separate from the results, it's quite refreshing to see someone new uh, and doing things in such a, you know, uh, kind of creative way. So, yeah, it's, it's good when there's fresh players coming through. I think it's good for the tour. It's good for everyone. And, uh, you know, even in a, in a harsh way, it's good for, for Mohammed to have, have that happened to him, to be honest. Um, you might have seen his post on social media not long afterwards, basically making a statement to the world, but he's kind of making a statement to himself as well there, which is, you know, I am human. I will, uh, well, every now and then I'll, I'll slip up. No, not taking anything away from Yusuf. He's, he's a great player, but um, it just shows that even when you're one or two in the world, uh, you can never rest your laurels you've got to keep improving you've got to be you know on it basically even from you know from the first second third rounds so yeah it was it was it was interesting and just yeah fascinating obviously watching him play on that court where it's so dead and he's got such a lethal short game um so yeah that that side of things was was good to watch um i said i enjoy watching him obviously from Mohammed's point of view it's much more for my job is about understanding, well, why did that go Yusef's way? Um, what are the kind of reasons behind that? 
partly tactically on the day, circumstances, um, but even thinking about, you know, running up to that event, did we do things, you know, could we have done things better? It's quite unusual circumstances at the moment. Uh, obviously very unusual circumstances at the moment, but I've um, had quite a long period of time between Manchester and, um, and this event, which in retrospect, I think was quite tough on him. Um, you know, coming into like the first round, even playing George, he'd been at the event for four days and done a couple of short solos, but it's quite a long time to wait for your first match without really hitting. And then previous to that would have been, I don't know how many weeks, but it could be six weeks before that was, was Manchester. So the gaps have been a bit longer for him. Um, and also taking into account that somebody that is used to playing more matches than most, you know, not only all of the events throughout the tour, you know, 10 to 12 tournaments a year, but then he's often getting to the latter rounds, meaning his, his, you know, how he's been competing as a player has always been lots of competitive squash. Uh, and as you can probably see, he's someone that really thrives on a continuous competitive environment, that, that stimulation that comes from, from playing tournaments, from playing matches, from being down, coming back. He, he really thrives on that stimulation. So um, it, it highlighted that for us partly that we need to try and figure out how to keep him stimulated and energised if and when there are these bigger gaps between events um, and then just starting to break down, you know, what needs to improve from a technical, tactical point of view and um, even mental preparation point of view as well. But, uh, but obviously, you know, this is the point you have a tough loss. You've just got to go away and learn absolutely everything possible from it and then use it, use it as an advantage to um, you know, energize and getting fired up for, becoming a better squash player for, for the next tournament. Now, it's interesting that you said that you weren't that familiar with uh, Yusuf Ibrahim. Chris and I probably know him a little bit better because he's actually at college in the US. He plays number one for Princeton. Mm. Uh, and it was really interesting that the very last event before lockdown was obviously Canary Wharf for the, the men's BSC Tour and um, Mohammed beat Ali Farag in the final there. Now, six days before that, Yusuf was busy losing in the quarterfinals of the college squash individual nationals. So he didn't even make it to the wow. semis college individuals. Um, so it just shows you how much of a transformation that has happened in his game. I know he's been back in Egypt and mm. potentially the, we actually spoke in our group, the three of us about the impact that trying to manage that balance between studying and competing at that high level has and whether the distraction of having something else makes it easier or whether the extra t time to focus on training and recover is beneficial. And it certainly seems for him that he's maybe struggled with managing the two. And um, I would suggest that maybe the training environment he has in Egypt is working a little bit better for him, certainly based on his results in the last two tournaments, because it's, it's not just a fluke. I mean, he made the last yeah. 16 of the, the Egyptian Open. So, He's obviously playing at a very high level, but I think everyone was still pretty stunned when he, when he saw that result. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's even at sort of 6-2 in the first. Mohamed was looking in, in control and it, it looked like it was going to go the way that perhaps, you know, a lot of people expected. And uh, yeah, but he, he had other ideas. And yeah, by the end of that match, anything that wasn't really 
tight on the sidewall and stuck in the corners was short and dead. <laughs> yeah. Even, a, even after he snuck that first game and then re-established himself and won the second yeah. and third fairly comfortably, it sort of looked like, all right, well, he's come out. Mohammed's well of the storm and he's got on top and it's just going to be a routine day one victory for him. But mm. the way he really kept going at I mean, in that fourth and fifth game, I can't remember seeing anyone hit so many return and serve winners against Mohammed yeah. in my, in my mm. life. Mm. No. No, I, I, I'd agree. Yeah. I just had a quick thought then. Even Rami. Probably especially on, the, on, on uh, Ibrahim's backhand. Just straight volley drop. And I, kind of some of the serves I was watching, I was thinking, are these just really bad serves? Or is this kid just like not missing? <laughs> uh, and there were, you know, there were a few serves that were pretty good there. I still think you could have varied the serve more. But um, yeah, that's it. I think when that kind of player who... You know, from from what I'm seeing, is you know extremely instinctual and skillful. Once he starts seeing the ball like that, and he can he can play on a court which rewards a short ball in that way, you know, he just obviously backs himself that I don't care where you put the serve, it'll go down there, and you're probably not going to get it. Um, <laughs> and it didn't you know, feel reckless either, because right? he was he was obviously attacking a lot, and he was playing without any fear, but. I thought he was quite clever in the way he constructed his rally and it wasn't like he was doing off the back wall. He was he was working his opportunities, but then when he got his opportunity, there was no sort of holding back. It was like, right, I'm going to go for it. But like I say, I didn't think it was a sort of desperation attack most of the time. No. Well, it, doesn't, it never looks like it when, they, when they're making nine out of ten either. <laughs> <laughs> he, hit, he, he did hit a couple off the back wall, off, off wider cross courts that weren't even sitting up very high. And yeah. he somehow found a way to put some bite on it and get it into the nick in the front. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was it's just one of those days, right? I, and yeah, like Stuart said, I, I've gotten the chance to see him play a bunch now. Um, I mean, not, not a crazy amount, but it does appear like even, even while he's been in college, he's gone away and, and had some very good results on the, on the tour. It is. It just show. It is a totally different game. Like in college, I always say this. It's like not set up for optimal performance. You hop on a bus. You know, you don't always get the best meal, or your meal might not be timed perfectly because you got ten other teammates that are also like eating. And then you jump off. You're playing on courts for the first time that you've never hit on. Like the courts we play at are are, are fairly different. Um. Than, than what a lot of the, you know, other teams coming in are used to. So, yeah, when he played here, you know, one of our guys uh, took him, I think it was like a really close four games. And, and yeah, our, our guys, you know, playing a little bit of PSA. Shout out James. Um, but, uh, you know, not, not in the top 100 or anything. And, and like Stuart said, he hasn't, he hasn't won a college individuals or anything in the couple he's played. And, and then you see him, you see he's him lost go off the- and he's – Lost in the quarters both times. I've yeah, actually got yeah. his college record is right in front of me. He lost three of his last four matches at <laughs> the end of the season. So one of those was to Victor, and he lost 11-4, 11-7, 11-3. Um, Victor's obviously a great player, but he certainly wouldn't think someone losing like that was going to go on and beat the number one in the world mm. six months later. So what's uh, so kind of points towards the, um, the, the mentality of the Egyptians as well? Like I think you quite often see it with league squash. Um, I mean, Mohammed's 
someone that I've obviously watched play quite a bit of league squash in the UK and there's been patches where he hasn't beaten anybody like himself for multiple <laughs> fixtures in a row um, and really struggled through some players, you know, kind of in the hundreds. But then the following week will go on and win a World Series event. So, you know, it's not taking any, anything away from the college squash environment or any of the league things, but, you know, these kind of players, they come to life in the environment that they consider to be you know, really important and, um, and, and sort of stimulating. And I think, uh, like I say, definitely be a product of being in Egypt for a long period as well. But, you know, you get on a world stage and you've got a lot of ability and talent that someone like um, Ibrahim has, and that's the place where he's likely to really cut loose. And where it's probably just, it's just a bit comfortable for him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. He also <laughs> looks a lot stronger physically, Chris. Yeah. yeah agreed. His, his biggest weakness in college has always been that he looked a little bit vulnerable and that certainly doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Having too much yeah. of a good time, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yusuf, if you're listening, Princeton, it's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> you might have something to fall back on. You might get a degree that'll get you a job anywhere in the world. It's just not for you. <laughs> Stuart, Stuart and I probably aren't going to confirm nor deny that. <laughs> all I'll say is Arthur knows what he's talking about oh yeah of course <laughs> I mean I didn't go to Princeton look how it worked out for me <laughs> uh, we move on to the quarterfinals yeah oh, yeah. one more match that I think we could maybe talk about briefly in that third round was obviously a player that you work with again Adrian Inyao playing oh, yeah. well. He had a great, great win in the round before, where he took out Declan James in three games, mm. and then he went on and faced Ali Farag in the third round and went down to love. But it seemed like he, he was pretty happy with his week overall. Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, yeah, as I said earlier when we were chatting, it's been a hugely long break for him. So this is his first event um, of the beginning of the season. So previously would have been uh, Canary Wharf right back in March, uh, which he was playing well in there as well. So he's had a long, long period uh, away from the tour. So it was, it was fantastic to see him firstly respond well because he had Kareem Hamami first round, um, who's obviously, you know, he's a dangerous player and can unsettle people quite quickly with his skills, you know, and he's quite kind of confrontational sometimes as well. So it was a good test for um, for Yao to go straight into that event and find a way through that first match, having had no proper competitive squash, um, which did well there. And then beating Declan was was also really positive. Um, again, and this is one of the things that excites me about Yao is that he he backs himself uh, you know, even though he may come across as a fairly um, quiet-ish, you know, nice guy, which he is, he does also back himself that he can beat these players. Um, and when he moved from one of the slight courts onto that glass court to play Declan, uh, it was very clear that he felt if he could execute the plan in the right way, um, that he would win. Um, and I think that's crucial if you want to really make it to the top of the game you have to actually believe that you can beat these players above you and that you have the tools and the weapons necessary to do that. So, um, and he did and he executed it well. And even when he got kind of close to the finish line and got a little bit of excitement in his game, he kind of slightly lost a bit of structure and uh, he was able to quickly regroup 
uh, and finish the job. So that was very positive. And then I think, you know, the reality was then that the step up to play Ali is, um, is another level and um, great for him to have that opportunity in the first tournament back to really show him, you know, as I said to him, he's, he's the best player in the world at the moment on the rankings, Ali. Um, and although Yao is used to playing Mo quite a lot here, he doesn't get close to Ali very often. And it's a different thing, a different way of um, creating pressure and, um, and playing the game. So it really was healthy for him to have that opportunity in this event. Uh, and also health, well, healthy for both of us to then reflect on that match and, and see which areas break down and um, what Ali does so well and what he can learn from that. So, uh, yeah, really, really pleased for him in this, in this first event. When you watch a match like that as his coach, do you take away one thing that he could really benefit from improving or is it just a case of chipping away at little bits here and there and improving all, all sorts of things? Um, I mean, with a match like Ali, it's, um, there's, there's probably more to gain in some ways um, than maybe with a match like Declan. Like Declan's a little bit more a little bit more sort of clear-cut in some respects, not just from the result, just but from how the rallies uh, go together um, so I mean often there's sort of one general thing that stands out but then there are a few sub themes which which relate to that as well um, I mean not you know Yao's not the only player that finds it difficult to um, to break Ali down <laughs> you know? um, everyone's going to find that difficult whoever it is because he's obviously you know a world-class player but it also does show that um, that separation for someone of Yao's level and that sort of 30 in the world standard that he has right now enough weaponry to uh, to break down you know players of, of Declan's level, Declan's ranking and, and level and probably even above that as well. But then there's that next category as there always is in squash, the sort of big three, big four that that have something that just you know consistently proves that they are the better than the others so um yeah we, we will we'll watch it i mean we're back on a monday you only got back yesterday but we'll, we're back on a monday and we'll go through that match in a fair bit of detail and, and look at the opportunities that um he maybe wasn't able to capitalize on because he can be in a match like that and he can stay with the kind of players um, but it's one thing staying with them and another thing actually scoring points. So it's looking at those areas, looking at the physical side a little bit as well. Like he actually suffered, he suffered a bit physically at that standard, um, which is, yeah, he's not used to that, I don't think. Um, or it was a bit of a shock to him. So we're, look, we're going to look at the physicality in a slightly different way than before um, a new trainer, which would be good for him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, like all of these situations, as I said, it's the same with Mohammed and, um, and Ibrahim. You know, we'll look at that and kind of go, well, you know, what happened? What, uh, what's going on here? Why, why was the match going in this direction when we needed to be going in that direction? And, um, and pull it apart in a way and then from there break it down into these sort of the smaller segments. And then with those segments go, right, we're going to work on this one now for this period. And then when this is done, we'll move to that one and um, keep it as specific as possible. And I'm, is it fair to say that by keeping it specific and to one or two details specifically, 
specific that that can act as a catalyst for some of the other things to fall into place or to improve or to you know increase the level of skill or movement or whatever the detail may be mm, I definitely i mean for, for me this is probably one of the most if not the most important elements as a coach is being able to you know with the player but but particularly from coach's perspective find um and understand like where are the most important areas because like all you guys know you could break one part of let's say we were talking earlier about um about greg marsh you know going forward and not having that drop shot opportunity in the front court which could be could be his thing but then the question is is that the area for the next period for him to work on you know and perhaps it is but are there any other areas that we miss out on and what other factors contribute to that area? Because everything like, especially at the higher end of the game, you know, the percentages are smaller, so you can't really get it wrong. If you get it wrong and you're working on something which actually doesn't have a big enough impact, the other guys are going to go past you. So it's always about trying to understand what, how do you pinpoint those zones that are going to have the biggest, biggest impact you know, and um, it's a never-ending uh, sort of puzzle in a way uh, because it's there's always going to be more things than you can work on uh, that show up. So the question is, if there's five, what's the top two? Mm-hmm. Um, because you said, Arthur, out of those two, there'll be some subtopics that will come off that. Yeah. It's like changing grip or, you know, position of the body or whatever. And then suddenly, you know, for a player, at the end of the day, for those things to impact that player, they've got to learn them. So then we need that period of time for them to actually learn those things and, and make the change. So, yeah, it's hugely important. And I think that's where, you know, high-level coaching is is getting better and better probably in squash and it definitely does in other sports. As you guys all know, they'll, you know, really leverage technology and teams of people to find these really critical details yeah. um, to not leave any stone unturned. That's the best thing. I, that's why I, I think we all love coaching is just no matter how good anyone is and granted, okay, you work with the best player in the world and, but even still, it's still the same. It's like you just, it never stops. Improvement yeah. never stops. And yeah. you're always, everything evolves, everything grows, including the sport, but just the individual grows. Their perspective changes from a mental you know, physically they change, their understanding gets deeper and deeper of themselves and of the sport. And ah, it's a great game, guys. It is. It. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. And, and that's the that's the other major factor is that the individual their their character changes from one period in their career to another. So the yeah. mindset of Mohammed now is not the same as the one it was in, you know, his mid twenties. He's actually a different person. So therefore how we do things has already changed. You know, you've got to factor that in as well. And he needs to understand that, you know, it's like you say, it's, <laughs> it's incredibly fascinating. Sometimes you can lose a bit of sleep over it, as I'm sure, <laughs> sure you've been there. But you, and you, and, uh, you always have to consider the knock-on impl- implications on other things. So using Marsh as an example, I said that he defends really well. Maybe the reason he defends really well is because his racket's down low and he can get under yeah. the ball nicely. Mm. And maybe he goes in, develops that counter drop, but suddenly loses his ability to lift out the front and defend well. Completely. So you've got to weigh it all up and try and oh. arrive at some sort of balance mm. that allows him to do both well. Completely. Yeah. I mean, that's, 
that's the, that's the big thing is particularly that that higher end level where the risk is higher you know obviously with Mohammed's prime example where someone who's got some unorthodoxies in his swing on both sides um you know we've worked on his forehand over the last period a fair bit since sort of just before end of sort of 2019 into 2020 but i've always tried to find a balance between simplifying it without losing its uh a little bit of its unorthodoxy but losing its whip and its hold and its kind of you know muhammadness basically um like you say Stuart, if you take that too far and i try and give him my forehand then and he loses that snap or that hold or whatever it's a hugely risky thing to do so you know my belief is never to deconstruct and start again uh adapt but also as you say factor in the consequences yeah it could be that like you say getting that racket head above the ball for marsh um would not outweigh his ability to lift so well for example especially uh, when they had so many repetitions of that established technique and and the the sort of potential risk of deconstructing that, like you say, is that you lose subconsciously over the years and mm. you don't want to take that away with someone who does hit the ball so sort of naturally. Mm, definitely. No, it's very hard. Yeah, and you never, you, you often don't know if you've got it right straight away anyway, you know, like time tells, which is kind of scary, but you've got to back yourself that, you know, and the player needs to to believe you back yourself that like, this is this is what we need to do and you know this is why and and we're prepared to you know you might have heard most say this recently you know but you've got to take a risk you know, he's taken a risk in changing how he trains uh changing his body shape a little bit and um changing some things technically changing how he plays puts rallies together you know that's they're, they're big changes quite significant in some areas but and, and they do carry a risk but he also knows that if he doesn't make them he's not going to get better uh, and if it doesn't get better, the players could pass him anyway. So, uh, you know, it takes courage, definitely, from the whole team. Tightrope. Mm, tis a tightrope, you're right. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, as you say, that's what makes it so interesting. So, so I guess moving on to yesterday's epic quarterfinal day, where we had all five, uh, all four matches, got five games. Um, was there anything that stood out for either of you? I would struggle to pick a sort of highlight from that round. Um, yeah, I know my, my feedback's just like it was it was all really, really good squash. Like, you know, it you have a bunch of uh I mean Ferris kind of looks back in form. Um it was good, you know, like we talked about with Yusuf Ibrahim Stewart, uh the fact that he could back up um some tough matches with uh in the quarterfinals, like you know, maybe he definitely looked like he made a few more errors um, than he did against Muhammad. But physically, you know, it's pretty impressive to see see a guy like that be able to uh, to back up back up matches. Ferris just kind of took it in the end. Um, but you know, just on that match, that's my only gripe. Of yesterday was I think the purist or the fan that was watching was robbed of a really great finish to that match, which I think the match deserved. Um, it's not Faris's fault. It was a clear double bounce. Uh, the video referee, I don't know, must have had a blindfold on. Uh, and it's not Faris's fault. Like, it's the referee, it's, it's right in front of him for them to interpret the uh, information and how they said it was inconclusive. And 
maybe look Yusuf's young so he, he didn't quite manage to keep his composure and the next few rallies were over like that and it was a bit of an anticlimax. Sorry, just that's my hot take. I was a bit Yeah, no, I think I missed that. I think I missed that. I, I saw you. You had your blindfold off. on too. Yeah, no, I saw you going <laughs> off on the chat about it. I don't yeah, I, mm. I, might have I saw a little away. clip of it actually. I think it was um, is it Squeams the guy that does yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, Squeams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he did a slow mo on his story today. That's the only uh, that's when I saw it actually, and I was like, wow, that's very conclusive double when it was sort of slowed down on the screen. Yeah, and like I said, it's I don't think it's it's look for us that he's just doing like he's trying to make a living, so that's fine. But the referee has a responsibility to 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 look at that and say, okay, well, I saw two bounces and. Like it's how it was inconclusive is beyond me, but that's what was the score at that time? I just I just watched it on screen as well. Yeah, it was six five. Oh man, yeah, and then it was it was boom, 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 and then it was kind of a you know a vague tap of the racket. And you know, Fred tried to embrace him. I'd love to know what he said. He probably said, Hey man, gotta make a living here. <laughs> well, there was there was a point to uh, I don't know why I'm. I don't know how I missed that point, but uh, there was a point, I think, in the front right where um, Yusuf got a ball, but it might have carried on his frame for a little, for a little bit along the wall. I know the one you're wall. talking about, yeah. And, and, right, and Ferris looked at him after the rally and was, and was kind of giving him crap. And it was funny because the announcers, I think, thought they were talking, arguing over whether they should clean the sweat on the floor. But to me, it was very clear that they were yelling at each other about the, about the Yusuf not calling his carry. And it was that after the, after or before? I don't remember. That was, that was before. That was early. Oh, I can't remember, actually. It was late in the fourth yeah, or I, early in the I fifth. Wonder, I wonder if that's why, you know, Ferris said, he's not calling his carry. I'm not calling my double. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know. know. Anyway, it's yeah, interesting, Chris, that you say he backed up, but it was one of those matches. I think you mentioned this in the Tamimi match where he, he won in five, but he actually won really easily in the three games. And again, just looking at the score in that match, both of Yusuf's games came in tie breaks. Um, but actually, the three games that Dusuke won were 11 4, 11 2, 11 5. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I just didn't think it looked like he was. Um... He physically like fell off completely or anything, you know. Uh, yeah, I, would, I would agree with that. He wasn't he wasn't quite as sharp, um, but yeah, you can't expect you can't expect to roll every single ball out for an entire tournament, can you? Yeah. <laughs> can't even do it for a match. <laughs> Cold straight drive. Uh, and Diego was another great match with with uh, with Ali Farag. That was a cracker. Paul Cole and Marwan. I mean, geez, they're all crackers. Mackin almost made it. I actually thought the Diego and Ali match was the one that maybe disappointed the most, just in terms of my expectations. I love watching both of them play, and I probably was expecting, obviously it was close, but it maybe wasn't the highest quality of squash from both of them. Um, in terms of the quality of squash, I would say that uh, Marwan and Paul Cole was the highest quality of match. Certainly, I found it to be the most absorbing or engaging uh, in terms of holding my attention throughout, just the sort of variation and subtlety of the hitting and changes of pace and the, also the sort of momentum swings throughout the match. Um, yeah, they they so were was, huge, weren't they? They were, yeah. Um, for a large part, I kind of felt like Marwan was not in 
necessarily dominating, but certainly in control and looked the more likely winner. Yeah. Um, but Paul just sort of hung in, stayed steady, didn't give too much away, and um, just managed to, as soon as he sensed a little chink in Ma, uh, Marwan's armory, he was able to take advantage. Yeah. I, like you, watched the whole match thinking there's only one winner here. Obviously, I was completely wrong. And it's funny because I even had him backed in our little fantasy squish where Paul was to get through. Um, <laughs> but I still watched the whole game thinking, mm, no, not, not today. But uh, fair play to Paul, fair play. Again, one of the things we've talked about offline amongst ourselves that would be fascinating to get Hadrian's take on is when you play that sort of more traditional style of play that um, Marwan plays, it takes such a high level of concentration to sustain that because you can't rattle off sort of five or six quick points um, in the space of a minute or two like some of the other players. So it just seemed that as soon as his concentration dropped just a fraction, Paul was able to sort of sense it and, and get in quickly and make the most of that opportunity. And, and again, maybe that's one of the difficulties of playing a more traditional game is that you your concentration just needs to be so on point because you can't sort of get those rapid fire points like some of the other players can yeah yeah no i know what you mean i mean it's marwin's um yeah he is definitely a more on a traditional side as you say probably for uh for an egyptian player particularly as well uh how he puts rallies together even probably technically he's he's probably more traditional more organized um, I think he can rattle points off quite fast, Marwan, when he gets um, in a bit of a groove. But he often creates that run of rallies on the back of uh, a longer period of, of sustained pressure. Um, as, as you guys know, like his his backcourt game, you know, you can see it's good when you're watching on TV and you'll hear the commentators talk about it and the other players talk about it. But I think without actually experiencing that on the court, it's quite difficult to, to really understand how much pressure he creates with that. And then what tends to happen is that the opponent, the buildup of that pressure of that backcourt squash, which is to say is quite traditional, accumulates. And then, you know, then the opponent has a period of, of kind of either frustration or lack of discipline. And then suddenly he can come and bang, bang, bang and, and fire off some quick points there. Um, but yeah, with a player like Paul, I suppose, who's, is, is very, very capable on the backcourt game as well. Uh, he does play also a, a similarly well-structured game. If you can kind of stay with Marwan, then, um, you know, it, it makes it much more difficult for him to, to score those quicker points. And uh, yeah, I, again, I thought Marwan would win. Uh, he's got a good history against Paul, generally. Uh, he, he tends to get the better of him, but... Um, but, you know, it's easy for us, isn't it, to sort of sit here and kind of go, well, you know, should be fine for this guy or that guy. But there's, you know, firstly, Paul probably is, well, I think he said it in his interview, I've sort of due uh, some better wins. He hasn't really got going, I don't think, this season yet, uh, compared to where he was, perhaps. I think he's, uh, he's started to get a bit more belief in this game. Um, but also... From Armand's point of view, you know, he's obviously started the season very well. Like it's been, you know, Manchester was good. World Series was even better, like really performing, beating everybody pretty much apart from Mo. So, you know, he's probably really hit that form. Um, 
which he's been aspiring to and believing that he can do for, for the last period. But um, again, kind of going back to these sort of breaks between the events and the uncertainty of the tour, and it's quite difficult to sustain momentum, I think, at the moment. Um, and particularly if you do have a good win or a good run of wins, as Marwan has in the last period, it's quite difficult sometimes to stop that or A, sustain that and keep that momentum, but also sort of stop a little bit of a, a fluctuation back the other way. Um, but having said that, you know, it was very close. I think um, things went slightly differently for one or two rallies than it could be Marwin in the, in the semis now. But um, it'll be interesting. I mean, I don't know if you guys know, but there's, there's due to be another tournament in, um, in Egypt in December all being well, but we never know between now and then. So it'd be fascinating to see how players respond to that. And black ball, right? Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I mean, what have we got? We've still got a month and a bit. So who knows what could happen between now and then. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is it. It's at this end, this sort of top, top six, top eight. Uh, it's bloody hard to keep winning consistently. Uh, you know, there's, there's, really um as it should be to be honest i think it's it's great it's great for the sport that people can watch and they know from well even third round you've seen the world number one one at number two this month but you know mohammed's going out in the third round and you know you've got a new face in the quarterfinals and then five setters for all the other matches as you say this is it's good for the sport for it to be like this to be this open and competitive yeah and the other thing that was really noticeable in that match was um, Marwan's sort of mental state seemed to be a lot different, not just in that match, but throughout this whole event compared to the previous events. And obviously he had the, the issues in his match against Tarek at the Egyptian Open where he sort of lost it. Do you have any insight on that in terms of, I always feel like he plays better when there's a little bit of fire in his belly. Um, and against... Mm-hmm. Paul, it was very noticeable that he was a lot calmer. He was trying to avoid any discussion with the ref. Generally, it was a cleaner match with less decisions. Mm. Maybe that's something that he needs to perform at his best sometimes. Mm. I think that's a really good observation. And it's back to the, the subtleties that we were just talking about earlier, but in this context on, you know, instead of technique or movement or whatever, it's on the mental side. Um, and as you say, like, each player has their, let's say, sort of optimum um, emotional focus mode uh, where they play their best. And, um, you know, that, that differs for each person hugely. And, and Marwan is, as we've seen many times, you know, he's, a, you know, he's quite, a, quite an emotional player. And when he's able to kind of tap into that and channel it and express it really in, in his game, then he's for sure one of the best in the world um so it's always a balance because as you said he he lost control of that uh in the last event um and and it you know went against him and didn't go in his favor so then you know the the temptation is to go the other way and try and control it too much um and and then that can also not be so effective so it's just about finding a balance really between being um being expressive and, and playing and being all in and to be honest, just <laughs> enjoying it. Yeah. Um, Do you find there's an element of like being aware as well of where you are in your own headspace that 
if you're a little bit too charged up like it was in Egypt to be maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum where it possibly could have been yesterday and then sort of understanding or knowing okay I'm I'm playing well I'm a little bit passive here I need to like get a little bit of needle in me or fire up the belly and then like sort of seeing signs where geez I, I'm I've got a bit too much fire in the belly here I need to mm. you know put out the fire a wee bit but not too much it's mm. uh like just self-awareness of that I think is 100 percent. Yeah, yeah yeah it really is and, and one of the biggest uh biggest obstacles of self-awareness is is you know, stress pressure anxiety you know expectation and, and once the you know essentially the the fight or flight you know sympathetic nervous system starts kicking in like as any you know mindfulness mind body kind of um teaching will tell you that you just lose all your self-awareness that's one of the the great things about meditation is it brings you back to go and Jesus, actually, yeah, I haven't really felt the rest of my body here. Like it's been numb because I've been so in my own head. Yeah. You're dead. You're dead right there. Arthur. if it's, um, if it's all spinning around up, up top, then you lose your sense of actually Jesus, you know, my body's feeling flat or heavy or like it's not sharp or my heart's racing and I'm over aroused or whatever it might be. So yeah. It's being able to, yeah, practice getting better at, at, at regulating that um, and, and being aware of that. And, uh, and, you know, I'm just the more I coach, the, the more strongly I believe that players have to be who they are um, and play according to who they are, their values, their beliefs. Um, and if you can get, if you can operate in that way, then you get that kind of clarity and sense that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, if you sort of try to be really focused or you try to be really aggressive or try to be someone that you're not, then um, you can, you can kind of fake that up to a point and you can perform in, let's say a sort of a, a type of mode. But uh, once that falls apart, it, it's a bit like you, you kind of get a sense of almost like Jesus, I don't know what to think now. I, I can't really remember like how I play. And then um, yeah. I think the, the, the greats have always been very good at that. I think, you know, you hear it in all sports, you kind of think, no, you are definitely just doing this how you do it, you know, yeah. for the reasons that you want. And um, it's all the big learning curve for all these players to, to try and figure that out, I think. Certainly is that. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, that's great. We got the semi-finals lined up. It's going to be a good couple of days, Chris. Um, Hadrian, thanks a million for coming on and joining us on the panel. Stuart, don't worry, we're still three. <laughs> it was only a guest uh, Chris Stewart thanks a million fellas yeah thanks so much Adrian it's been fascinating to no hear from you and get your insights so thanks yeah. really appreciate your time yeah, yeah. awesome stuff uh, okay guys you like what you hear don't be afraid to you know share it to your friends and check us out on social on Facebook Instagram and Twitter uh, have a great day enjoy the squish and if you're in lockdown that's tough Hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's time. Yeah, we are. <laughs>